bass guitar and a drum kit, is it not? Holy smokes. Um, if you're new, if you're joining with us this morning for the first time, my name is Jamie. I'm one of the pastors of our church, the guy who gets the privilege most Sundays of opening up and unpacking the scriptures as we come together. Speaking of, uh, if you're new this morning, this morning marks the beginning of a new sermon series, so you picked a good time to engage with us. It's a sermon series that's going to carry us throughout the course of the fall all the way up to the Advent season leading into Christmas, a, a series entitled Songs of Ascent which is basically a walkthrough of Psalms 120 through, through 134. Uh, it doesn't take a deep dive into scripture to know that singing has been weaved into the very fabric of the universe for the glory of God, right? Angels have been singing God's praises since the foundations of the world. Man has been singing God's praises since Adam burst forth in song upon the, the creation of Eve when he saw her beauty. God's people have had a song on their lips and in their hearts throughout the course of redemptive history. And that's a song that's going to carry all the way into eternity, forever filling the new heaven and earth with, with lyrics and chord progressions to the praise of God's glorious grace. And so knowing that, that the Bible communicates something of this biblical theology of song, it should come as no surprise to us that the scriptures would contain their own hymn book. The, the Old Testament includes the book of Psalms, which has been referred to as the hymn book of the Old Testament, a, a collection of songs to be sung by God's people in response to his goodness, glory, and grace. A Spotify playlist of the people of God before there was Spotify. So for the next 15 weeks, here's what we're going to do. We're going we're gonna to essentially put in our proverbial headphones and listen to an album within that very hymn book, an album that that the Israelites would have been incredibly familiar with as they put it on repeat numerous times a year. Most of our Bibles include the, the superscription or the title that you typically see above verse one in many of the Psalms. Most of our Bibles include that title to be a song of ascents. When you look at Psalms 120 through 134, all 15 of those have that, that title prior to verse one. Some scholars argue that, that the Hebrew word ascents can be translated as step or stair, and that these psalms were sung either in ascending the, the steps of one of the Jerusalem city gates or, or in ascending a set of steps within the temple precincts itself. However, the widespread view is that these psalms were sung by the Israelites as they journeyed to Jerusalem several times a year for the major feasts and festivals. Feasts like the Passover feast or the Feast of Pentecost or the Feast of, of Tabernacles. Jerusalem was a, was a city on a hill. It was, a, it was an altitudinal high point in the land, you might say, meaning that the journey was always upward, regardless of, of where you were traveling from, as is the, the Christian life today, right? The road of discipleship oftentimes feeling like an uphill climb. But it's on that very journey that, that you and I are invited to cry out to God with the full range of human emotions, I mean, make, make no mistake about it, this 15-song album that we're going to look at over the course of the next several months, it's incredibly musically diverse, as is the entire book of Psalms, capturing the, the fullness of the human condition, the fullness of the human experience, filled with not only songs of praise, but songs of lament, not only songs of thanksgiving and remembrance, but songs of wisdom and confidence, so that regardless of, of how you're holding up this morning, Whatever you bring into this, this space as we gather together, 
The Psalms are a good place, as I've said before, to, to go and let your soul steep. The entire hymn book ultimately pointing us to this great hope that we have in Jesus Christ, the, the only one truly worthy of our song. As I've said numerous times in the past, the heart sings of that in which it delights. And so the hope for this series is that you and I would delight in God that we would see his goodness, that we would see his glory, that we would see his grace revealed in the face of Jesus Christ, and that in seeing and delighting in him, that our lives would become more and more a song of praise. With that said, if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up to Psalm 120. That's where we'll be this morning. Most of these Psalms are incredibly brief. You're talking about a half dozen verses on, on average. As you flip there this morning, I'll just remind us that uh, right up under the clickable link for song lyrics is a clickable link for sermon slides. So if you're a visual learner and you want to kind of track with what would typically be up on a screen behind me, if we were in our auditorium, you can go to that same digital connect guide on our website and you can kind of follow along with sermon slides as we work our way through this morning's passage. Also, as a reminder, while you're there on that digital connect guide, uh, there are links that you can utilize if you're a newcomer to let us know a little bit about yourself and give us some information so we can connect with you and begin a conversation about who we are as a church and where we're going. There's also a link for community groups, which launched today. So if you're in a Sunday group, today should be day one uh, of, of the launch of our groups going into the fall. You'll be diving into Psalm 120 in a little bit more depth this afternoon and evening if you're in a Sunday group and then onward marching into the, the coming days, depending on what night of the week your group meets. So you can sign up for a group if you're not a part of one right now by just clicking on that link on the digital connect guide. Let me, uh, let me do this. Let me go ahead and pray for us and we'll jump in and get this series started. Heavenly Father, we, we come to you this morning asking you, as we do every Sunday, without fail, to do a great work in our hearts. Pray that we would walk away changed in light of our time in the scriptures this morning, God. Would you attend the preaching of your word in power, in might? Would you save lost sinners? Would you sanctify your blood-bought people by your grace? It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So in beginning this series, let me just start here in terms of framing. It, it, it doesn't require being a, a music junkie to know that the, the smiled upon formula for any good album is that the lead off track, get your blood pumping, right? Very few albums begin with, with a lullaby, though some of the best ones do, I would argue including this 15-song album that we're going to dive into this fall, buried deep within the book of Psalms, which begins with an individual lament, one that eventually became a corporate song for Israel. Not the most glamorous or energetic track on the album, probably not going to make top 40 radio, which I think communicates something in and of itself, does it not? That, that Christianity is an honest religion about the troubles of this world, about the reality of what it is to, to live east of Eden, which is why the, the psalmist begins this very album by calling out to God in his distress, discontent with the world in which he finds himself. Right, the album will, will eventually bring us to Jerusalem, Psalm 122, and ultimately to the temple itself in the last of the tracks. But, but the album begins with, with this declaration of homesickness in a faraway land surrounded by strangers, 
surrounded by enemies. So that the psalmist declares in verse one of Psalm 120, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. All right, we talked about this back in the spring, that, that most lament psalms include four key elements. The first of which we see here in verse one, this, this turning to God, a calling out to the Lord, which as I said back in the spring when we worked our way through a lament psalm when COVID-19 was very new to us, that that's far easier said than done. Calling out to the Lord, turning to God, that we live in a world filled with numbing agents, a world in which it's incredibly easy to anesthetize, to turn to things other than God, whether it be to numb or to cope or to escape, that, that most of those things are not in and of themselves evil that we would turn to, oftentimes good things distorted, right? Functional saviors that we, that we run to, to deliver us from sadness, to deliver us from disappointment, to deliver us from, from grief and loss, broken cisterns, empty wells. Christian lament begins with a turning to God, choosing to run to him in the midst of grief and loss rather than other things. Here we see the psalmist declaring having done just that and given assurance that the Lord has heard his cries and will bring about deliverance. So what is it that, that causes this distress? What's the problem? What, what is it that he's lamenting? What is he fed up with? Well, the answers to that question are incredibly common as we'll see in the coming verses to our own experience here in the 21st century. He says in verse two, deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. Right, this album begins with a cry for deliverance from lies, from deceit from those who mask their true intentions. There's nothing under, new under the sun, right? The author of Ecclesiastes had it down. As we find ourselves in this day and age, in our very moment, surrounded on all sides by the deceit of advertisers who promise to rescue us from our own personal hells, offering us functional saviors in 30-second snippets, or by the deceit of politicians and major media outlets who segment us into various constituencies and feed us what our itching ears long to hear so that some of us have tuned out the headlines altogether, convinced that there's little to no trustworthiness to be found there. The psalmist finds himself in a similar kind of world, east of Eden, just the same. What he longs for is not some sort of spin on reality, but reality itself. And so what does he do? He turns to the most ultimate reality of all, God, crying out for deliverance from, from falsehood, from deception. He says in verses three and four, what shall be given to you and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue, a warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. That rather than taking matters into his own hands, the psalmist leaves vengeance in the hands of God referred to here as a warrior in answering the psalmist's cry. A God committed to dealing with those who wound with their lies, who wound with their deception by way of the sharp arrows and glowing coals of his judgment. Now, make no mistake about it, we, we talk a lot around here about the love of God as a father, we his sons and daughters, his very children, so that we can cry out to him as Abba. He's the kind of God that you can run to and will treat you like a son, like a daughter in Christ. But that's not where this psalm goes. 
right? The loving father is also a just judge. That's the God of scripture. And that's where the psalmist runs in this particular psalm. And I I just want to show us for just a second, the perfect justice of God in a psalm like this, in dealing with the wicked, the deceitful tongue. If you look at the imagery of verse four, you, you get two images, right? You get sharp arrows and you get glowing coals. Elsewhere in scripture, the deceitful tongue is described as a bow whose arrows are words that wound. You get it in a number of places like Psalm 64 verses two and three, where the psalmist says, hide me from the secret plots of the wicked, from the throng of evildoers who wet their tongues like swords, who here it is, aim bitter words like arrows. Or Proverbs 25, 18, a man who bears false witness against his neighbor is like a war club or a sword or a sharp arrow. Or how about Jeremiah 20, uh, nine, uh, chapter nine, verse eight, their tongue, the wicked's tongue is a deadly arrow. It speaks deceitfully with his mouth. Each speaks peace to his neighbor, but in his heart, he plans an ambush for him. But not only is the deceitful tongue likened to an arrow elsewhere in scripture, but also to a fire. So that you see in Proverbs 16, 27, these words, a worthless man plots evil and his speech is like a scorching fire. Or perhaps more famous passage of scripture to many of us, James chapter three, verses five and six. James says, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. That the sharp arrows of the Lord, coming back to this morning's passage, verse four, and the glowing coals of the broom tree, that imagery declares something of the perfect justice of God in bringing arrows upon archers, and fire upon arsonists. You see that same kind of language as we see in verse four in in other places in the Psalms. Psalm 64, verses seven and eight says, but God shoots his arrows at them, at the wicked. They are wounded suddenly. They are brought to ruin with their own tongues turned against them. All who see them will wag their heads. Or Psalm chapter 11, verse six, let him, that is the Lord, rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. God's justice is a perfect justice because God is a perfect and holy and righteous just judge. So that the consequences that he brings upon sinners are, are perfectly righteous and just. He's the perfect warrior king whose enemies shall surely fall. Enemies not only in their lives and deception, but as the psalmist goes on to say, also in their hatred and hostility. Look at verses five through seven. He says, woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. The psalmist not only longs for truth, but also for peace, while those around him only want to stir up conflict. Again, there's nothing new under the sun, right? Every talking point in the context of this cultural moment in which we find ourselves framed in such a way as to pit the one against the other, polarizing society into two different camps on on the basis of any given talking point, fanning into flame divisiveness and, and hate. Again, the the psalmist finds himself in a similar kind of world, 
east of Eden, longing for peace in a world that hates peace, in a world that seeks to inflame society into to two different camps. And it's all around him, on all sides. Verse five, both Meshach and, and Kadar. Meshach representing a people far to the north of Palestine, northwest. Kadar representing a nomadic desert people to the southeast. So that what, what verse five is communicating is that the psalmist is surrounded on all sides by a world not his home, longing for something better on his pilgrimage toward the city of God. As he says in, in verse six, and this should be the cry of any Christian's heart. Too long, he says, has this been my dwelling. There's gotta be something better. We see it in Hebrews chapter 11, verses eight through 10, with respect to the story of Abraham, where the author of Hebrews tells us that by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For, here's why he stepped out in faith. Here it is. For he was looking forward to the city that has its foundations, whose designer and builder is God. This first song on the album, it's meant to, to stir us, to ask some honest questions. We should begin to ask ourselves as to whether or not we feel incredibly at home in this world. Because the reality is the road of discipleship, it begins with discontentment, a coming to the end of ourselves, a coming to the end of the promises of this world. I shared this quote as a teaser in Thursday's email that went out. Eugene Peterson in his book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, which is something of a commentary on these 15 Psalms that we're going to look at throughout the fall so that this won't be the first time that you hear me quote him. He says this. He says, a person has to be thoroughly disgusted with the way things are to find the motivation to set out on the Christian way. As long as we think the next election might eliminate crime and establish justice or another scientific breakthrough might save the environment or another pay raise might push us over the edge of anxiety into a life of tranquility, we are not likely to risk the arduous uncertainties of a life of faith. A person, he says, has to get fed up with the ways of the world before he or she acquires an appetite for the world of grace. Psalm 120, it sets the stage for the Christian pilgrimage. As God's people move from, from the agony of Meshach, you might say, to the joy of, of Jerusalem. The title of this, this leadoff track, appropriately taken directly from the lyrics themselves, Deliver Me, O Lord. Our hearts cry, first and foremost, as we hear those words, should be, Deliver me from me, God. Deliver me from myself. If you're not a Christian, my prayer for you on the basis of the language of Psalm 120 is that you would see yourself among the archers and arsonists. None of us can escape that indictment. All human beings have fallen short of the glory of a holy God as sinners. A God who, according to Psalm 120, must execute his perfect justice in punishing sinners lest he be disbarred for sweeping corruption under the rug an unjust judge, that we all, Romans tells us, uh, as in Paul's writing, deserve the wages of our sin. 
the sharp arrows and, and heaping coal of God's wrath turned against us forever for offending his holiness. And it's not a fate that we can rescue ourselves from. Romans 3.20, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. But if you're a Christian, you know this. Our only hope is Jesus. That the cross of Christ is the only way that God can forgive sinners without sacrificing his justice on the altar of his mercy. That the cross of Jesus Christ is where the mercy and justice of God collide as God is able to vindicate his righteous reputation by punishing Jesus for our sin. That the perfect covenant-keeping, sinless Jesus died in the place of imperfect covenant-breaking sinners. The sharp arrows and heaping coals of, of God's wrath poured out on him in our place. That, that you and I might be counted among God's pilgrim people by grace, through faith, in Christ, sons and daughters of the living God. Our newfound destiny, the, the very celestial city of God, the new Jerusalem. If you're not a Christian, I implore you, you to turn to Jesus in faith and to join we who are in Christ on this great journey to glory. If you're a Christian, this world is the worst you'll ever have it. This Psalm reminds us that the world is not our home that we're aliens and strangers and that we, we should live as such. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, Peter tells us, he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, as those on a journey, travelers, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Lest we uh, position ourselves as if the, the problem is forever and always out there. We have to ask ourselves whether lies and deceit, whether hatred and hostility ha has found a home in our hearts. Whether we're prone to half-truths in this strange cultural moment as we paint ourselves in the most favorable of lights, hiding our sin behind the wall of a virtuous ethic so that we become untouchable to, to any sort of rebuke. And that goes for every profile that's out there, cautious, confident, and everything in the middle as, as it pertains to its COVID-19 application. We have to ask ourselves whether we're creating conflict when we should be making peace Jesus calls us to be peacemakers. My prayer for us as Christians is, is that we would be willing to cry out those very same words as we look in the mirror. Deliver me, O Lord. Deliver me from myself. Forgive me, God, for playing on the world's turf according to the world's terms. For trying to outdo the world at times in being the world. Sanctify me from the lies and deceit within from the hatred and hostility within, first and foremost, God. Rescue me then from those very same things, as the psalmist says, that surround me on all sides. That the Christian, according to scripture, is both a disciple and a pilgrim, always learning and always moving. For the pilgrimage of, of Christian discipleship, by God's grace, he's kindly given us a playlist. And it's a playlist that, that's meant to help us feel what we're meant to feel, to think what we're meant to think, to process what we're meant to process. 
as we bring the experiences of this life lived east of Eden before this God of Scripture. These Psalms, and, and we need this constantly, every day before we roll out of bed, we need this. We need two things. We need to be reminded of who we are, and we need to be reminded of where we're going. And this album does that. Every single week throughout the fall, we're going to be reminded of who we are, and we're going to be reminded of where we're going. We're disciples of Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our King, and we're on our way to the celestial city of God. I would say it may be an uphill climb, but I don't think that's a maybe. It will be an uphill climb as we stand for truth, as we stand for peace in a world in which deceit and hostility are increasingly becoming treated as virtuous. But here's the good news. And Psalm 120 declares it loudly and triumphantly that our God is a God who delivers his people past, present, and future. We have been delivered from sin's penalty we are being delivered, praise God, from sin's power, and we will be delivered from sin's presence forever when Jesus returns to set all things right. And so my prayer for us this morning and as we move into the next 14 weeks of this series is this, may, may we trust in the Lord on the journey before us, not in ourselves, not, not in functional saviors and idols that surround us. May we trust in the Lord on the journey that's before us, living by faith as the disciples and pilgrims that we are. In the world, but not of the world. Committed to this rugged journey of discipleship that finds its destination in the very presence of God. Amen. And so here's what we're going to do for the next few minutes. We're going to turn to this God. We're going to do verse 1 of Psalm 120. We're going to look to the Lord. And we're going to sing our song to him crying out to him, declaring who he is, what he has done, is doing, and will do for us in Christ. We have an opportunity to practice verse one together with our corporate song, running to this God. I invite you to do that. There will also be an opportunity to receive of communion. If you're a Christian, that meal is for you on either table to the left or right of the lawn where we're gathered, our communion cups. If you didn't grab one on the way in, you're welcome to come during these last couple songs and grab one of those and partake of the bread and the cup when you're ready. The, the bread representing the broken body of Jesus, the cup representing his shed blood. As you receive of communion this morning, as you prepare to do so, I just encourage you to pause for a moment and, and consider the wonder of the hope that's ours in Christ as you take that imagery in Psalm 120 and you think about the fact that Jesus received the sharp arrows and heaping coals of God's wrath in our place so that we don't have to. That cup should taste really sweet this morning because it's not the cup of his wrath, but rather his kindness.